What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. My name is Mark Bigney. I will be your co-host today. And with me is my more attractive partner, Michael Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Fantastical. I'm glad to hear it, Walker. I have to say, this week was probably one of the best weeks of gaming of my entire life, both in quantity and in terms of quality. You know, we talk a lot in this hobby about avoiding the cult of the new. To a certain extent, the cult of the new is to, is our job. And we often feel as though we don't have enough time or even just enough mental bandwidth to remember to go back to even some of the recent classics. But I have to say that this week was stellar in terms of being able to get things to the table that I don't play enough or recent things that deserve more love. And so I'm just I'm just basking in the warm afterglow of a stellar week. It was a good week. We had a, a, a gaming event day, which always gets in good games. We had some good... Usual meetups where we decided just to go back and enjoy the week and play our favorites. So all was good. So this, we are going to be talking about board games this week. We're going to talk about the Eurus, uh, the as yet unnamed retrospective intro segment where we talk about what we reviewed last year. We're going to talk about the games we played last week. I'll try to get through that with some degree of brevity or editorial cutting. And then we are going to talk about our topic this week, which is deal making. And no doubt here, Walker will slander me hideously. So, Walker, what did we review last year? Mark, exactly one year ago, we reviewed a game called Fayum, designed by Freedom Freeze and published by 2F Spiel, like most of his other games. And this is the second game that I've I've regret, regretted getting rid of, first one being The Others. And uh, it is just a great game. It looks the just the... the basicness of it how it looks just the you know the sheer plain i don't know what, even how to explain it just oh it's definitely got that sort of minimalist euro minimalist appeal that's it yes yeah a lot of 2f games are are like that and by 2f i mean friedman freeze not even necessarily 2f spiel he's definitely solidly in the euro aesthetic but there's something to be said for a classic sort of spare sparse especially when like fayum it is a game where you're building the map over the course of play through very simple uh, wooden pieces over relatively sparse graphic design, but nonetheless has a solid visual appeal. No, I definitely agree. And it has a very unique uh, deck management system where you're going to be picking up your cards in the exact order that you put them down. I am definitely going to be reacquiring Fayum and looking forward to playing it again. I've been trying. I'll try to get you another copy. Ah, no rush. (laughs) Yeah, I would happily play Fam again. It never quite materialized the way that I wanted it to. I feel like Fam, if Friedman Freeze went back and designed an expansion deck, and I don't even think that this is a question like I talk about Ark Nova needs an expansion designed by Tom Lehman. I don't think that there were any serious problems with Fam. It's just that sometimes 
players could result in like pumping the same three or four cards in a row. Uh, and sometimes that would even trigger in the early game, which was a little bit unfortunate. But also just the potential of that game system is massive. I think if Friedman Freeze or indeed any other designer with, with chops could return to it, they could blow up that system to truly interesting depths. I mean, it could be any number of different things. And I'm not even talking about like 504 or anything of that nature. It's just the fundamental card system and the map and the idea that you're building up infrastructure, you're building up an engine, or, and or you're building up any number of terrain topography. And it could be a troops on a map game. It could be a pick up and deliver game. It could be any number of things. And so it, I, I wish you'd go back to it, to be honest. Yeah, and, and the fact that it's all shared really creates this interesting, you know, player interaction dynamic, which is, yeah, it, yes. all, it all sort of, it just so flows together, you know, with the cards being able to be picked up by anyone and anyone using all the infrastructure and things disappearing and being repopulated. It all works. Over the course of, of the time since we've reviewed it, I haven't played it. I'm mostly haunted by the potential of what fame could be and sometimes shows glimmers of, you know, again, exploiting shared infrastructure, the dynamics between players taking advantage of new aspects of the map of shifting an engine mid-stride by virtue of player interaction. Those are things that Fame would do sometimes, but again, I wish Friedman Freeze would make good on his implied threat of expansion material. It's right there in the rulebook. He's like, look, you may, you may notice that the card numbers are all offset by one. That's because it's leaving room for expansions. I'm like, where are they, buddy? Friedman, yeah, any day hook now. us up. So I'd happily play again, but I mostly wanted Fame to be slightly more Fame, if that makes so. any sense. Fammy. There you go. And that is what we reviewed last year. Walker, what did you play last week? Mark, I played Spires and Hildegard. This is a game designed by Greg Favreau, and it's more like a solo experience. It's sort of like a choose-your-own-adventure, but using a card system. And it has this unique dice system. It sort of talked about this fishing system, which I thought would be a little bit more... Uh, robust, but it's just more of the same sort of dice pooling thing. You start with uh, the each fight you have will have an accuracy value, and that'll tell you how many dice you get to roll. And then it'll tell you which sides of the dice you're allowed to use against this particular feat, and then you're rolling the dice, and you have to choose one. You keep rolling the dice, but you keep having to lock one in, in every time. And what you're trying to do is create bullseyes. So all the dice faces are different, you know, either a circle or half a circle or half a bullseye, and you have to use them to sort of create all these successes, which are full bullseyes. And then, and then depending on how many you get is, you know, the level of success, and then you'll choose the card that you get. Very interesting so far. I'm definitely going to go back to it because I did enjoy it. The art is fantastic. It is by Digo Feus. It's not the same artist that did the first set. but this, Oh, interesting. But this is just as good, if not better. Lots of cards, four different chapters, and it's not they're not different scenarios, which I thought they were. I thought I'd be working through deck one. But, you know, something happened where I got beat up a little too bad and I had to sort of escape to the mountains and I went right into deck two and I thought, okay, hmm. that's kind of weird, but sure, let's go with this. So I'm sure it's going to be a very interesting scenario. And what is the relationship between Spire's End Hildegard and Spire's End the original? Nothing. Ah. Two completely different stories. As far as I know, as far as I got so far, maybe it's going to, this is sort of, uh, sort of Kiki's delivery service. You wake up and, and you, and this package is here and you've decided to start this service and here's your first package and off you go on this adventure to deliver this package. But same designer, same publisher, different artist. Just so. I see. Interesting. 
So as I said, marvelous week for gaming. I'll give a quick rundown of some of the games we've talked a lot about on the show. Innovation, two weeks in a row. That is fabulous. Innovation is definitely one of my all-time favorite tableau builders. Got to play Innovation again. Got to play A Feast for Odin with the Norwegians expansion. One of my favorite worker placement games. Marvelous time with that. Played Jetpack Joyride. I, I seem to, as I've commented before, I seem to find myself in a position a lot of common games nights not being invited to the table of sweaty tryhards who want to play Arc Nova or the latest... Vitalis Erta, so I'm often left with other people who want to play lighter stuff, which is fine by me, and so Jetpack Joyride was definitely something I pulled in for, for that angle. On the aforementioned Common Games Day, played another game of Ankh, Gods of Egypt. Not one of the lighter games, necessarily. And I had a blast with that. I still haven't played the Pharaoh expansion. I really, really want to play the Pharaoh expansion. But Ankh, Gods of Egypt continues to delight me in every instantiation. Zero regrets about making it Game of the Year last year. It has continued to, to please in exactly the same way. After a long delay, went back to Whale Riders from Reiner Knizia, one of my favorite light games of the past five years or so. And it was a joy as well. We played with Five, which was, I was worried about downtime, but it's such a quick game. It moved along at a very, very good clip. And everyone immediately took to it. And the biggest disagreements were about which porpoises the various wooden whale figures corresponded to, which is a big issue. But uh, I'm not going to quibble over such things. And also got to return to Wavelength. This is a review copy we got from CMYK Games. More on them in a moment. Ever since we've been getting back to party games after larger gatherings, not that the pandemic is over, people, but now that larger gatherings are somewhat safe, I've been waiting to get back to Wavelength for quite some time. And I got to play with a whole bunch of new people, and it's a great way to get to know people, and it sparks interesting conversations. I was a little bit let down because the, the category that intrigued me the most was... You had to give a clue on a spectrum from wise to intelligent, and I'm like, oh, this is going to be fascinating. But unfortunately, someone punted and just resorted to D&D tropes. Oh, no. So, yeah, it wasn't the best. And so, person's a wizard. And... All right, fine. There was a bit of disagreement, though, because one of the players there was unfamiliar with D&D tropes and said, oh, well, Gandalf the Wise. I'm like, oh, okay, I didn't know that that was one of his epithets. But in D&D terms, they specialize in intelligence. So it's like, well, you know, is it a dump stat? Does the person in question play D&D? Anyway, so really love Wavelength. Such a lovely physical design. Really solid game. Very glad to go back to it. So that is a very, very brief digest of some of the games I've been discussing over the course of the, the past recent, all of which I have been able to play over the course of the past week. And as I say, this is just the beginning. I know one of the great games we got to play together is Trick Shot, second edition, designed by Artie Nechapurov, Wolf Designer. More on them later as well. It is a great game. It's sort of like a dice manipulation or... or or, push your uh, luck. Push your luck with the dice, and it represents hockey relatively, as I think the best that I've seen so far in a board game. You know, you have your face-offs and slap shots and hitting. It, it gives you that a little bit of a blood bowl feel, sort of, you know, weaving your way through players and blocking paths and, and lanes and passing. And thankfully, there's not a sort of league system, so you don't have to keep track of every, <laughs> you know accepted pass or, or, or goal for all your players. Oof. All of the teams have a special ability. I shouldn't say that. Every team has an array of special abilities. It just depends on every team has their own sort of combination of special abilities. 
great game. Even the arenas have special abilities. We were playing with a sort of hybrid of second edition rules with first edition components. The second edition takes what was already a relatively simple system of actions and streamlines it yet further. I remember asking Artie at Shucks, this is an example of name dropping here, of course, about the changes to second edition. He's like, it's, it's, it's much streamlined now. I'm like, really? What was there? But in practice, I was actually very pleased. It does actually remove a lot of the strange corner cases, and it, it sort of makes the action system much more cohesive. Not that it was sprawling or complicated before, but as I said, I'm, I'm, I'm always dubious about second editions of first edition games that I think are already great. But Artem Nichaporov and Wolf Designer are sufficiently impressive that I, I shouldn't have been suspicious. I have to say, I was thinking about it recently, and it's always more pleasant to talk about game designers who are underappreciated, if not underrated, and certainly underplayed. It's it's always more enjoyable to talk about that than game designers who are overplayed or overrated. Well, that it's also very enjoyable to talk to designers that will revamp their systems. Some will die, you know, on the pyre <laughs> thinking their game is perfect the way it is, where others not only take that information, but enjoy taking that information and bring out second editions and, and take all of this data and, and, you know, make the game better. I agree when it's evolutionary, when it's balance fixes, I sometimes feel a little bit put out, especially if it is not easy to get updates for first edition owners. In the case of first edition trick shot, you can play by the second edition rules and it works fine. And if you want the upgrade pack just consisting of some cards, that will also work just fine and it will revamp the way player abilities work. So we were playing with first edition player abilities and first edition arena abilities. One of the things that you commented after we set up trick shot and what I keep forgetting is how beautiful the game is. Yeah. And I was actually appreciating even just little details. I'd never really fully appreciate it. I feel stupid now having noticed it. Why Why is this board glossy? All the other wolf designing boards aren't glossy. Oh, wait, it's ice, you idiot. It's so, <laughs> so it actually kind of invokes the idea of playing on, a, on, a, on an ice rink. Yes, Trickshot 2nd Edition was uh, a wonderful thing. I really think that uh, Artem Nichaporov, along with David Thompson and Jim Felly, are three designers that I think too few hobbyists have been exposed to for a variety of reasons. And everything they put out is so stellar. Artem Nichaporov is a genius. And uh, the 2nd Edition improvements that we were able to experience were marvelous to an already incredible game. And I'm looking forward to being able to play the full experience when the upgrade pack arrives in the mail. So that was Trickshot 2nd Edition. I get to play a game of Crash Octopus. I love Crash Octopus. It's rapidly becoming my favorite dexterity game. And I would like to propose humbly the following house rule that I tried for the first time. I'm, I, I, the jury is still out. I'm not certain if this is a direct improvement, but it worked okay in the in the two games that I played this week. So I would. Is it taking the giant octopus head and knocking your opponents out with it? No, Walker. Oh. It is not introducing physical violence oh. to a child's game. My bad. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought they were looking at me somewhat strangely at the board game cafe. <laughs> yes, I will put this humbly to the uh, Sugoi team of international crashers, or stoic. This is what I've decided to call people who play Crash Octopus. So... If you ever lose a treasure, because it's a game about gathering treasure, if you haven't already, you can slot in your spare flag into your anchor. And then at the end of any future turn, you can cash in that anchor to do a free navigate. Because one of my key criticisms, uh, or disappointments, I would say, of a game that I otherwise find excellent, is 
the boats don't move around the map very much. Generally speaking, between acquiring treasure, which advances your victory condition, and moving around the map, which only indirectly affects your ability to do those things, very frequently you just run out of turns. And when turns are that tight, you don't want to feel like you're quote-unquote wasting your turn. Furthermore, it stinks when the octopus reaches out its giant pink tentacles at you and decides to strip you of whatever it is that you were desperately hoarding on top of your boat. And so this proposed solution helps both increase the mobility and decrease the sting of being smacked in the face by a cephalopod. Oh, wait, are they cephalopod? No, they're not cephalopod. I always get this wrong. Mark, mark, mark. I know, it's disappointing. They're not squids. No, it's true, they're not. (laughs) (laughs) At any rate, so if you two are uh, a fan of Crash Octopus, and if you are willing to give any feedback, even hypothetically, on this uh, humbly proposed house rule, by all means reach out with one of your eight tentacled arms. That is Crash Octopus by Naotaka Shimamoto by Iten. So Rift Force came out with an expansion called Rift Force Beyond, and you and I played that. This is designed by Carlo Bortolini, and he also designed the original. And they did more of the same. More of the same, just as good. I'm always surprised this game is just better than it really deserves to be. It is super fun to play. All of the different combos you're going to get, it plays super fast, easy to teach, interesting to play. Enjoy it every time. I'm vaguely curious about the solo and or team modes. I fully plan on trying out the solo mode sometime this week. It appears to be relatively simple in its execution, which is one of the two criteria I have for a solo mode, the other being that it feels like the normal game. We'll see. But part of the joy of Rift Force is, as you say, navigating the special abilities of all your cards and navigating the clever activations system, because in order to activate and or to play cards, they all have to be of the same suit or they all have to be of the same numerical value. And so working through those trade-offs is one of the difficult things when you're looking at your hand and trying to figure out, well, I want to activate this five and this six, but I can't do both, so what am I looking at? And knowing when to take that hit of, like, replenishing your hand and whether or not you should wait till you have a lane to score some points or not, all of these things in such a little time. Yeah, the the, the tempo trade-offs are borderline Knizia-esque, which in a two-player card game is certainly high praise. And I agree with you that the expansion, other than, as as we say, other than the team play in the solo mode, which we haven't tried yet, doesn't really buck the formula in any serious way. It just has a whole bunch of new suits that are all within a a, a sort of constrained universe of speciality. They're all interesting to navigate, but nothing is truly wild. They're all like, do some amount of damage, usually one to three-ish. And then the less damage you do, the more special ability it has or, or what have you. It's, it's all very, very straightforwardly applied, but nonetheless gives you a lot of flavor of asymmetry, which is a good place for such a quick game to be. It's not like navigating wild special effects like you might do in Innovation, like you might even do in a game of Resist, which is, you know, games where they're primarily driven by extremely asymmetric card effects, which is also enjoyable, but Rift Force is able to be a, a slightly yeah. more clean and measured experience. Yeah, there's no take that because... All of the abilities are on the table. Exactly. The only thing that are on the cards is how many hit points they have and sort of what trigger and what number triggers them, I guess you could say. So, you know, you lay out your, your main cards, all the special abilities are there, and it's just when you and how you apply them. Exactly. That was Rift Force Beyond by Carlo Bortoloni and One More Time Games. Played another game of Horizons of Spirit Island, still working through the new spirits. This time I tried Sunbright Whirlwind. And I have to say that in much the same way that Eyes Watch from the Trees very much plays into how I normally play Spirit Island, Sunbright Whirlwind does not. It gave me strong 
River Surges and Sunlight vibes, which is to say I've never really, after playing River Surges, I never really feel like I was exploiting it well. I get the impression that to play River Surges well, you kind of have to play into its unique power. And so you're kind of constrained within those uh, parameters unless that's really what you want to do. Similarly, Sunbright Whirlwind, I got the strong impression looking at its starting powers and looking at its innate power, it really wants to rush up the track and get to the point where it can play four cards in a turn or three three of the right cards and some sort of innate element generating ability because before that, it's not really going to be able to leverage anything seriously. And that's okay. It's just not a style of play that I, I, I fully adopt. I'm looking forward to trying the Mud Otter. Next play will definitely be with Mud Otter. But still having a great time, and I cannot believe, again, just to uh, take a step back and, and take some sort of appreciation for the moment we're in in the hobby, I cannot believe that Spirit Island is in mass market big box stores. It blows my mind. Well, yeah, if we if Gloomhaven wasn't exactly. crazy enough, let's bring Spirit Island. Absolutely. So Horizons of Spirit Island is the, uh, thus far... I, I actually got uh, I, I got reminded that Greater Than Games has plans to get it in the hands of Canadians and Europeans, but we don't know the details yet. So for now, it is a Target exclusive, designed by R. Eric Royce, disclosure, a personal friend of mine, Greater Than Games, Horizons of Spirit Island. Well, I think that's happened with the other Target exclusive. Like, after a year, I think they have an exclusivity for one it's year. It's all contracts, right? That, yeah, yeah. You, it goes to the... Anyway. We got John Company 2nd Edition by Cole Worley to the table. This is published by... Whirly Gig Games. A little bit of changes from the first edition. A little smoother. Uh, all the players at the table felt as though they had more more control over what was happening. Uh, John Company is definitely a game that will get better with more plays. Because there is deals to be made. There is, you know, talking back and forth. And until you understand what everything is worth, it is very hard to make those things mean anything. And in order to, because the rules teacher we had was huge enough. And then to add that on top of it, it would make the rules teach way too long. So it's pretty well something you have to play, learn what things are worth, learn how things work. And then next time you come back to it, which is hopefully soon, and you haven't forgotten anything, (laughs) then you can pull those levers a bit better and understand, you know, what you're giving up to what you're getting. You're exactly right. The game... John Company 1st Edition, as well as 2nd Edition, it can kind of sort of run on autopilot. Because what's going on is you're running the British East India Company, and you have to deal with its operations. And as well, you have to deal with what is happening in India. And it's very easy for those systems to run themselves. And it's the challenge of the players who are operating within these systems to make profit for their own families within the confines of a company who may or may not be doing well independently. And knowing when you want the company to do well, knowing when you want the company to struggle, when you perhaps you might want the company to fail, these are things you're only going to know with experience. Noticing those elements of friction where you can make a profit at the expense of other players or even at the expense of the company or the expense of someone else, or well, always at the expense of the Indians, let's be frank. But setting that aside is a further challenge. And then it's a yet further challenge to notice how you can start cutting deals to your own advantage. Because frequently after our first play of John Company 2nd, and we played the first edition about three or four times, and I agree with you that John Company 2nd gives the players more freedom, a little bit looser room in order to maneuver for their own benefit, as opposed to the first edition, which was very much, okay, you'd all best best to keep the company surviving, or it's going to fail and you'll all be bankrupt anyway. And so it kind of felt more like a cooperative game. 
game than John Company Second does, which I think is a, is a step forward. But very frequently, you'd end up in this position where we thought something would be personally valuable for us. We would argue and and spend and cash in favors to try to get it, only to realize literally five seconds later, why did I do this? This doesn't help me at all. Not because something else had happened. Not because, you know, Hyderabad had revolted. Well, actually, let, let, I think I think Hyderabad is a bit of a slur. What about Hy- Hydera no comment? Gotcha. Is that is that okay? Yeah, not always bad. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Hydera sometimes good. Hydera, awesome. I mean, moving on. (laughs) Knowing, again, knowing those systems, internalizing a little bit more so that the incredibly detailed turn structure kind of falls away and it becomes second nature and you start to see more of those elements of deal making in John Company, I think will absolutely work to our advantage. It certainly doesn't help that uh, I I have a lot of respect for Cole Worley. Uh, The rule book is bad. It doesn't have a glossary. It's written in a very conversational style that's not particularly well signposted. And uh, unlike Root, which came with two rule books, one of which was a sort of conversational introductory thing, and then uh, a very heavily paragraphed terse version that you could then go look it up, I found John Company's second edition's rule book to be, in some areas, literally incomplete. There's a, there, there are missing sections and, and stuff that isn't there. And when a game is this counterintuitive in a lot of ways, that's a serious, serious problem. And a number of people have pointed this out. Uh, Cole Worley has been somewhat resistant to acknowledge the difficulty or the necessity of even having something like a glossary or a reference, uh, a, a reference accompaniment. And that is unfortunate because it's a fascinating game A number of people have drawn the comparisons to Republic of Rome, the old Avalon Hill slash republished by Valley Games game, where, again, it's kind of sort of semi-cooperative in that there's this large structure that works by itself, and you're within that structure trying to profit individually. The new, I have to say, the, the, the new bit that impressed me the most were the advantage cards you would get in the London season. Some of them were very interesting. The take that cards that are the blackmail cards, eh, not as nice. I mean, it, it's more grist for negotiation. Like, help me out or I'll do this thing to you. Sure, fine, whatever, that works fine. But I really did appreciate how interesting, especially the family members. You would marry these family members and they might bring you some power and wealth. But in the process, they issue some restrictions. I ended up with a whole bunch of family members that basically didn't want me to engage in grubby industry, which was fine because I didn't have any industries to start with. Like, oh, well, you know, we're happy to marry your son, but uh, we don't like factories. (laughs) I liked how there was different lanes that you could pull the gears. Like we went heavily into making the company profitable. We did lots of trades. We fought over the profitable areas and tried to get victory that way. Whereas, well, only, only through shipments. We went to military shipments. late in the game. Well, that's what I'm saying. And we never opened up trade to China. Exactly. We we sort of diverted from the, the war for the, almost the entire game. And I yes. can see where, and I remember in the first edition where it was very profitable for the war part. And I can see where in this game, whereas if you go in early and start opening up things a lot faster and making things available to more people where that could open the game a little bit more. I remember the military system in, in John Company first edition to be almost inscrutable. Like you could devote considerable resources into trying to get the military up to snuff, but then some, some empire through random events would come and crush you anyway. I was going to say, yes, it was very random, but yes. it could be random in your favor sometimes as well. Well, in second edition, it seems like it's far easier to at least get a sense of being able to defend yourself, as opposed to just provinces disappearing out into the ether, 
which is mostly my recollection of the first edition. So yes, uh, we were big fans of John Company's second edition. It was a long experience, but we all felt that the time went by at a relatively brisk pace, uh, contrary to a couple of, of rules issues here and there, which is to be expected. And let's hope that we can get it back to the table in due time so we don't have to start again from zero. Agreed. John Company Second Edition by Cole Worley and Worley Gig Games. Got to play Sidereal Confluence with the Bifurcation Expansion. Sidereal Confluence being the marvelous game. Sorry, sorry, Sidereal Confluence where? It's trading and negotiation in the Elysian Quadrant Walker. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. I wasn't sure. Yeah, you're confused about the various yeah. Sidereal's confluences? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. The Bifurcation Expansion introduces alternate version of each of the nine heavily asymmetric races. So now you have 18 heavily asymmetric races to experience. Being modest uh, in, in designing, wanting to introduce new rules, and because there were a couple of new players, we only had one new alien race here, the, uh, a variation on the Kajasvat Kalim, or the pheromone dinosaurs, which helpfully was pointed out by the designer Tassidy Dykeman in Board Game Geek, are roughly the size of a dog. Because a number of people showed up in the forum and said, how big are these things? Because there's a race of bugs, there's a race of dinosaur-looking things, and so like, well, what's the size and scale here? Uh, so that was very helpful and, and, and very useful. And so this variant of the Kajasvat Kalim, instead of being imperialist warmongers, are kind of like a mirror image of the charitable space squids in that almost they, they have this marvelously powerful economy that only generates donation goods. And for those of you that haven't played, donation goods have to be traded or given away by the end of the turn. Have to. There's no or else. They have to. So... As a consequence, the entire economy of the table shifted. Normally, in my previous games of Serial Confluence, although there, there are no hard and fast generalizations about negotiation games like this, right? Because you establish whatever meta or whatever economy you want over the course of a given session. Typically, donation goods were just often laundered because they were a small element of the economy. I've got a white cube in my donation bin. You've got a white cube in your donation bin. We look across the table and say, I'll trade you a white for a white. There we go. They both get cleared off of our donation area and we can use them. But in this case, there were so many donation goods to be had, we actually took seriously the opportunity cost of laundering them rather than it just being a, a, a weird side effect. And so it was a fascinating addition to the economy. Furthermore, it inflated the scores of everybody, right? Again, an average score for serial confluence is hard to generalize because it depends on who's in play. Are the squids in play? Are there uh, other races with large donation bin? In this case, we both have the charitable space squids and we have the charitable space dinosaurs. And so there were lots of goods to be had if you knew where the deals could be cut. And so everyone scored very, very high points. Anyhow, I am a huge fan of serial confluence. It is a very divisive game, and as a consequence, it can be difficult to get a large number of people locally to come play it. I think that it has an unearned reputation because, yes, it is a game of trading cubes into other cubes, but I normally hate games of that nature, but I adore Sidereal Confluence. And the expansion was an interesting twist. However, it strikes me as very much the kind of expansion that is purely optional. There's already nine heavily asymmetric races for a very, very specialized game that feels different from every session regardless. And so I'm not disappointed pointed that I picked it up, but I can I can pretty safely say uh, it's pretty optional. You don't need bifurcation, although it is impressive design work, so there's that. Sidereal Confluence Bifurcation was designed by Tau City Dykeman, published this year by WizKids. I got to play Oak. This is a new design by Game Brewer, and it's actually designed by Wim Goosens, and it's sort of druid. You're playing these druids, and it's a worker placement game paired up with cards. So there's three main areas where you're doing uh, actions, 
and they're all listed on the cards that say I'm doing, you know, you have feather cards, you have uh, mistletoe cards, and you have rune cards. You have start with a hand of four cards. And then there was... I'm a, still triggered by mistletoe after Balder died. I know. I'm, hashtag too soon. Hashtag too soon. And then on your card, there are three different actions that you can do in these areas. And there's three different stones. And you have to actually put your druid in the right stone to do the action that you want. And you pay the cost that it says on the card. And then you get the thing. You get the Benny. So there's real sort of choice between, okay, I want to do, you know, there's two actions of the card I want to do, but once I play that card, it's gone. Plus you want to get to these places before, because there's real blockage in this game, because it is quite a penalty to go to the actual spot in the work zones where someone already has a druid. So let me get this straight. The literal function of the worker placement spot isn't modified by, but it is entirely determined by the card you play in conjunction with it. Just so. I can't wait to try it. I've been wait, I've been commenting before that all the combinations of card play and worker placement uh, have have left me variously disappointed in various ways. That sounds really promising. Yeah, this is do, you know, this is a feather card, and then feather card action three, you put the druid mm. in, in the third spot, and you get to do this thing. And then, not so you you start with only three druids, and then, and you only have spaces for three druids on your player board. You have to build more spots for more druids, because you have a big pile of druids that are under the tree. So like I was saying, if a spot is emptied, or sorry, is full, you have to take one of your active druids and put them under the tree. So now you're down a druid, and it's like a whole action to get more druids mm. from the, so it's like a huge thing. Blocking is huge, so that's why I love it. It actually matters how which actions you take and what order, and get what's important done. So there's two different, there's the... the those type of actions on the card, and there's one on the bottom that lets you move up this tree, which is sort of like get the first to the end to get the victory points. And then there's a bunch of uh, special areas that you can go to. Now, the super hook on this game is the fact that you can upgrade your druids. And when you upgrade your druid, you take these plastic pieces and you put them on the actual meeples and you turn them into super fancy meeples. Oh my goodness. So you have the antler antler head guy, you have like satchel, you have the bard, all these different ones you can make. Much like if anyone's seen any of the tiny epic stuff, they, they've already done all this, but this is... Just as cool. One of the hooks why I got it. I really enjoyed it. There's all sorts of other things going on that I You didn't... get to play dress up with your little worker you placement? Do. I do. Oh, I must try this game. And the fact that it comes with five player boards that have, you know, sort of slight variations to them. So you're, you have your own unique power right off the beginning. It's pretty well just the special actions that you do as opposed to the card actions. One of the actions on your starting cards is to draw... Uh, pick one of the cards. You have four cards off to the side, so you can. one of the actions is to add yet another card to your hand, so as you're getting more druids, you have more card actions you can do. Can't wait to show it to you. I really enjoyed it. Lots of other things going on. This is Oak by Game Brewer. Got to play a game called Persuasion. This is named after the Jane Austen novel of the same name. This is designed by Zoe Allred, and it is an unpublished design. I received a review copy from uh, Zoe. And I'd say that, like leaping from a stone staircase at a seawall in Lyme Regis, adaptation of the Austin oeuvre is it's, it's a fraught enterprise that often ends badly. There have been previous efforts, uh, which were tolerable, I suppose, but not handsome enough to tempt me. I shall never share with you about persuasion at least one thing very clever. Failing that, two things moderately clever, or three things very dull indeed. That will just do for me, you know. I, I shall be sure to say three dull things as soon as I ever open my mouth, but there may be a difficulty. I'll be limited as to number only three at once. At any rate, Persuasion was a fascinating game because superficially, it is a lighthearted game about sending letters to other people 
and trying to find out what symbols they have, because what you want to do is you want to marry somebody with a preponderance of one kind of symbol over another. There are three different symbols. I want to marry somebody who has more roses than crowns. Somebody else might want to marry somebody who has more crowns than diamonds. There you go. But these are all hidden at the start of the game, and you gradually get more information as it goes out. But you only get information about somebody when they voluntarily share it with you by sending you a letter. And so fundamentally what persuasion is about is it's about power. It really is about the imbalance of power and the fact that you need permission from other people to get anywhere. So it's got this superficial element of light play acting. At one point, I did look over to the person sitting next to me and I said, I will turn myself into the kind of man you want me to be. And sure enough, I then had to start shedding some of my attributes. It's like, get get thee gone, material possessions. My beloved doesn't want me to be rich. <laughs> but fundamentally, it's about in, it's, it's this weird element of vulnerability not entirely unlike romance. You're standing there, you know, like at the, at the high school dance where you're, 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 everyone's just standing around, not really talking to anybody else, and you have to send a letter to any, uh, somebody else, thereby empowering them both with information about you and literally with new actions they get to do. Because whenever you send someone a letter, they get to peek at that letter at any time, reminding themselves, so there's no memory element, which is great. And also, that gives them a new action that they get to activate later on. And so it's this weird feeling of powerlessness, of vulnerability, but that's how you need to get going. And so there are marvelous parallels that can be drawn here between courtship, whether it's about in the Victorian era or any other period, and it nonetheless allows you to engage in the kind of light Austin roleplay, so you can enjoy it on a lot of different levels. I was thoroughly impressed by Persuasion. I can't wait to try it again. You can access the design through the designer's Itch.io page. It has an Itch.io page that I will link to in the episode notes. You can get the uh, uh, print-and-play files for a suggested donation or even for free if you want to stiff it, but there you go. And just there were layers upon layers of the social dynamics here. It reminded me a little bit, and I, I don't mean to be pejorative about Persuasion because it's a far better game. I remember playing Ladies and Gentlemen. Ladies and Gentlemen was a fine experience once because it turns you into a monster. It's a game that, that, that divides you into two groups, the ladies and the gentlemen. The gentlemen exist purely to generate money, and then the ladies exist purely to spend the money. And the social dynamics that that generates is fascinating and makes you feel so filthy you want to take a shower at the end of the game. Persuasion manages to capture a little bit of those dynamics primarily in terms of the power dynamics that you have to engage in with the other players, but not nearly in so stilted or so blunt or so obvious a way. And as a consequence, I really want to try Persuasion with lots of different kinds of people. I want to see how other... Uh, hardcore hobbyists appreciate it. I want to play it with other people who really appreciate Austin novels because sadly at that particular table, I think I was the only person that really likes Austin. And it was just really great. As a side note, as a uh, a mini episode perhaps of Masterpiece Theater, I cannot recommend the recent Persuasion adaptation that's available on Netflix, but the other ones that have been done, one with Sharon Hines and one with, I can't remember the name of the actors involved, but anyway, those are both solid. And so I I recommend, oh, uh, Anthony Stewart Head. Playing different roles. Anyway, (laughs) solid adaptations of Persuasion. Persuasion's probably my favorite or second favorite Austin novel, so there you have it. Persuasion by Zoe Allred, as of yet unpublished, but you can access it on its Itch.io page. I picked up a copy of Great Western Trail Argentina by Alexander Pfister, published by Eggerspiel. And upon reading the rulebook, I was kind of angered at how like Western, Great Western Trail original was. And the fact that, you know, the second edition just came out and then they immediately put out Argentina, but 
playing the game, it does play much, much differently. They have ad- they've added a couple more uh, resources. One is power, and the other one is wheat. First you get the cows, then you get the power, power. and then you get the wheat? You eat the wheat. You eat the wheat. Wheaties. To- Wheaties. Wheaties are for winners, Mark. Wheaties is for closers? Yes. Okay. So what's different here is mostly the, the cash-out phase with your cows. And unfortunately... It makes that phase longer and therefore just sort of torpedoes the flow of the game. Mm. Because when you cash in the cows, the first thing you can do is spend a bunch of wheat to do this other action on these three maps. But you can't do that action until you've seeded those three maps with some of your tokens, which you do by cashing in the cows. I see. Because you got your cow level, you look over at the boats, and you put your token on the boats. Instead of along the top of the of the thing, like normal Western Trail. And then, as you know, that when the turn marker goes down, it usually populates with cows and other things. But in this case, it'll send certain ships out to those three land masses, the three different boards we've got. So now you've got your tokens out there. And now in future cash-in phases, you can now, there's all these different spots on these maps. It's like, okay, for three wheat, you can put that token there. I see. And it gets you a bunch of money and or victory points. Stuff like that. So you're seeding a new action type, basically, that you do every time you reset. Just so. On the board. Yes, because one of the virtues of Great Western Trail, uh, the OG Great Western Trail, I don't want to say normal. Let's not say that Argentina is abnormal. But the original Great Western Trail is it was very quick. I mean, turns were relatively quick. Even when you did the, the big reset by delivering your cows to the wrong place, because let us not forget that Great Western Trail inverted the great cattle drives at the time for no particular reason. It was just something that the publisher did arbitrarily. I don't know anything about the cattle industry in Argentina of any period of time. I hope they didn't engage in something as stupid in that particular adaptation, but yeah, marvelously good flow. Shame that that that's kind of gone because a lot of Fister games don't have very good flow, but Great Western Trail did. Well, I remember in Great Western Trail, it was, you know, it, it, did still seem to bog it down. It was like cashing in and then you got to pick the different tokens to seed it. So this is now, you know, spending the wheat, deciding on the boat and, mm. and then, and then also seeding the, the figures back on. And that's where the power sort of comes into play. So now instead of having the outlaws out on the board where you just pick them up and, and use them to fulfill objectives that you can now, they have, instead of having the obstacles, they're all farmers. So you can get farmers, so you can just land on them and then they have a power level. And if you can meet or exceed that by, uh, you could have a level of power due to other workers you have or other cards or things you unlock on your board like you would normally, you can also spend cows. And that is the other interesting mechanism in Great Western Trail Argentina. When you spend power with playing out your cows, because they all have different power levels, you get these sort of like curse cards, just like things that bog down your deck. And you can't get, there. you can get rid of, I don't know to say you can't get rid of them, but the, there's only one way to get rid of them. Typically, there are some buildings you can go to, but once they're in your hand, you don't get to put them back onto the pile until you cash out. Mm. So they go into your discard pile, they're in your hand, they're sort of sounds locked pretty, there. Sounds pretty punishing. It's pretty bad. But like I said, there's one building there you can put them out on. I didn't engage in that part. Some people did. Some people did heavily, and they still got rid of most of them by the end of the of the turn. Okay. All new buildings, all different interesting powers. I really enjoyed it. I can't wait to play it again. It sounds like you enjoyed it about as much as the original. 
Exactly. Which is so. high praise for you. Yeah, and and I definitely, if I had a choice at this at this time, which is one play, I would definitely play it over the original. Oh, really? Well, that's high praise. For sure. Yeah, it sounds like, my recollection is that, that your position, and it was kind of my position as well, that between original Great Western Trail and original Great Western Trail with the expansion, there was something somewhere between the two that we wanted. Yes. Because there were some, not quite defects, but some elements that we felt were improved on by the expansion, but that overall the expansion became a little bit too overwrought, a little bit too all-encompassing. And that's one of the great things about alternate versions after the designers had a, a first draft. And Fister's a very interesting designer, and I, I'm curious to try Argentina as well. I'm not as big on Great Western Trail as you are, but I enjoy it thoroughly. And so I'm very curious to see great, what, what he's done with uh, this variation. I would point out, though, that in the context of your comments, you said both cows and doo-doo. Oh, I'm sorry. Just seemed like an obvious substitution for the curse cards. You could have said your hand gets filled with... One thing you do do is you get cows in your hand. It's true. Anyway, your just hand, saying. Your hands gets full of doo-doo. Finally, for me, we played a game called Turncoats. This was designed by Matilda Simonson of Milda Matilda Games. It is a game where the board is the sack in which the game comes. You spread out this lovely little felt board. It is a heavily abstracted game of area control. And I don't mean to be d- uh, dismissive when I say this. I mean this is high praise. It feels very, very much like The King is Dead or König von Siam by Paris Sylvester. In that, the factions on the board do not represent the players. The players have various investments on the factions of the, on the board. And at the end of the game, there will be one faction who is ascendant, and whoever has the most influence in that faction will win. Furthermore, another aspect in which it's very reminiscent of a lot of Paris Sylvester designs, it feels like it's impossible to exert any agency over the game without kneecapping your board position or kneecapping your overall position because the way you take actions in turncoats is by giving up influence over a given faction. You want red to win a fight? Well, you have to cash in some of your influence in red. So as you're making the red faction more apt to win, you're less invested in red. What a little Steven's rockety. Yes, actually, those kinds of trade-offs between board presence and hand, hand influence. You're right. One of the salient differences, though, between The King is Dead and Turncoats, which I think adds an extra little element of tension, is that your investment in the various factions is not publicly known. You have to make inferences on what other people have in terms of of what moves they're making. In The King is Dead, it was publicly open. Everyone knew that, oh, well, someone's dominant in yellow, so they win if yellow wins. People have, have made the comparison between Turncoats and War of Whispers. I think this is very unfair because War of Whispers is what's the polite term for a game that's not any good different. And Turncoats, on the other hand, it manages to keep that tension of uncertain information without feeling quite so scripted and staid and, and sort of swingy as War of Whispers would always also redound to. The tempo elements of Turncoats are also very interesting because the only way not to cash in influence in a given faction is to do what's called a negotiate action, which is where you're just cycling your hand. You pull randomly from a bag, and then you pitch one into the bag, and everyone knows what you pitched, but not what you pulled. So a little bit of information enters the system a little bit, and you stall for time. But if Everybody does that in succession. That's how the game ends. Sometimes that happens very very early on the game. Sometimes it takes a while before that happens because people uh, need to pivot. And as a consequence, you can pivot. In the second game of Turncoats I played this week, it's a very quick game, 
I was in a position where I started out wanting black to win, and then it became clear that that wasn't going to happen, and I made a hard pivot, and I, I went deep into red and almost pulled it out. The fact that I was near to the victory, despite the fact that I completely changed my allegiances midway, uh, was very, very satisfying, I think, from a mechanical perspective. Turncoats is very, very pleasant. I think it has just the right level of tension, both in terms of, of undercutting your own position and in terms of not knowing what other people have, without making you feel powerless in the former condition or without it feeling incredibly arbitrary in the latter condition. And a lot of games have tried to navigate this sort of area control with uncertainty and, and tenuous control, but I, I tend to feel either powerless or arbitrary in a lot of those cases. Like a War of Whispers as an example, uh, King is Dead slash Kind of Sam is another. And I think that Turncoats is better than both, both honestly. And I'm very much looking forward to trying it some more. I think that uh, Matilda Simonson has done a very, very excellent job. I'm looking forward to trying other things designed and published under Milda Matilda Games. And what's more, it is a unique object in a sea of normal looking board games. It's this lovely little felt pouch. How nice. You get to lay it out, and everyone goes, ooh. The pouch is the board. The pouch is the board, Walker. The pouch is the board. The pouch is the board. Turncoats. Yeah, not quite it from you, because we both played Guards of Atlantis 2 Well, today. I knew you were going to introduce it, yeah, Walker. I, I, was, I see it. Thank I, you. I, I, yeah, I'm yeah. doing... It, this is like What are you doing? This is, is it like, commentary? This, yeah, it's like... Well, no, but I was... Anyway. This is the, the stick. This is also designed by R.D. Nichapurov, also by Wolf Designer. Well, it is his company, after all. And it never fails to... Uh, to please. So good. I sort of threw it away at the beginning of the game because I continuously wanted to go up and play with the sledgehammer machine and was <laughs> and was surprised when the sledgehammer machine did what the sledgehammer machine does. <laughs> but I thought maybe this time it will be different. No. It it still still did the thing. <laughs> I played as Garrus, who is basically a dog Roman gladiator man, and I, I just just randomly, I seem to, over the past couple of games, end up playing duelists. I played Misa the Samurai. I knew she was a duelist going in. I just picked Garrus semi-randomly this time. I vaguely remembered what he did. I remembered that he got more powerful when he had a card in the discard pile, but I couldn't remember the specific details. And the specific details are, he will kill you. Not, not you know, very much like some of the other ones. He's a brawler, first and foremost. He's not very good at positioning or fancy tricks. He'll just going to come up and he's going to play his attack and you're going to say, how high is that attack? Whereas you play the Angry Bear again, Ursafar the Savage, and Ursafar the Savage is not normally someone you consider a trickster, but in comparison to Garrus, he has many more tricks up his sleeve. So true. Still loved it. Still was kind of close. Oh, no, it was very close. And, uh... We, we ended it with a minion push into the home base. I haven't seen that in quite some time, but we really went on a limb in order to get that to work. I was very, very close to have gotten ganked several times, and if a couple things hadn't worked out precisely right, we would have been in serious trouble, and I think desperately setting ourselves up for the possibility of a hero death loss. And it was the, the kind of thing where a relatively new player got a relatively difficult skill to work. And that's the great thing about Guards of Atlantis, especially Guards of Atlantis 2. You get all these highly conditional cards. You look at them and say, I'll never be able to pull that off. And then you start you start being able to see the gears and you start figuring out and then you pull it off and it determines the win or it 
proves conclusive in a given exchange, and it's marvelous. All these lovely moments of discovery. I, you know, Guards of Atlantis Two just continues to unfold new wonders. Fabulous, fabulous experience. Yeah, that's why those cards are great because usually they have a decent move on them or a decent block. So you just either a keep them in your hand for the block or put them down for the the movement. And then there's that one time where you look down and you're about to use it for movement, and you're like, wait. That skill perfectly triggers right now. I'm going to do that instead. And sure enough, it is a game changer. So you've played the bear twice now? Not not on purpose. <laughs> okay, well, I was like, we started and I started reading the cards. I was like, oh. Oh, you'd forgotten you'd already been bear. Okay. I remember you, bear. You, you <laughs> like to get very angry. <laughs> oh, bear gets very angry. You don't want to. So we had a bear and a dog. <laughs> did. Or a jackal, really. I feel the urge to develop proficiency with a given character, despite the fact that I am not, as people know, I do not self-identify as a sweaty tryhard. But I think it's good that I'm not tempted to do that with our given group, because although there's sufficient interest, everyone who's played Guards of Atlantis 2 has loved it. Even people who are like hardcore Euro players, like Asimi played Guards of Atlantis 2 and was blown away and was very, very impressed. But I don't think we have a local group that is going to get to the part where everyone's like knee deep in a given character and be able to do that. And so to keep things on a level playing field, we should definitely keep cycling in new characters. So we're all usually at, at, at a comparative intro level because, oh my gosh, the skills, the skill ceiling in Guards of Atlantis 2 is huge. Yeah. I love how quick when, when you have a couple players that have played it before, how quick it sets up, how quick you're into it. It's literally, you pick a character, and you sort of sort yep. your cards out and then you're ready to go because someone's also already has already set up the board and you put down everyone put that puts down a card because it's simultaneous action, you flip it up and you're off to the races. Guards of Atlantis too. It was a great capper to, as I said, a week of some of the best gaming of my life. And I knew that I wanted to play Guards of Atlantis 2 again very, very soon. I always feel that way, quite frankly. And I was very, very glad to have played it again. Artem Nichiporov and Wolf Designer, Guards of Atlantis 2. And those are the games we played this week. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, Visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Well, this is a denomination of 10 episodes, so we're going to flog ourselves and ask you to <laughs> share the episode or tell people about, you know, if you enjoy this show, let people know about it, share it on Facebook, just do stuff because you've robbed us of the, of the ability to participate in the Golden Geek Awards, <laughs> <laughs> which was our only way to advertise. <laughs> You ungrateful cur. I know, I'm awful. So, yes. Yeah, we don't like self-promotion. You'll notice that we, we, you know, we don't ask you to hit any buttons or smash any buttons or 
pound any buttons or yikes. Yeah, I know, or anything like that. Uh, but we do have a Patreon. It's the it's our exclusive source of support, and I'm very proud of the Patreon content we put out. On a bad month, we put out two hours of Patreon exclusive content. On a good month, we put out considerably more, and we're at the point now where we put out new Patreon exclusive content every week. And so I'm very proud of that. If you want to get access to that, you can check out our Patreon. There are, are links everywhere. And if you just want to get involved in the discussion, we have a very lovely Patreon-exclusive Discord where people only insult us about half the time. It's good. It's nice yeah. that way. It's, it's a much better ratio than everywhere else in my life. Yeah, I only cried about three times a week this, this, this week. You know, good. good for you. High five. Yeah, high five. So, yes, and Mark does a ton of work on that. We also, there's also, not only is there more content, but there's also tiers that get you just free games. So, yeah, you ever wonder how we clear out our basements? We send out games to people. That's right. Thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> So I got a, a lovely little notification in my email box of a new product from C- CMYK. CMYK, of course, is the company that has put out Wavelength and Monikers and the just-launched dice game from John Perry Spots that I've talked about a number of times on the, the website. Solid group of people. Interesting group of games. And now they're getting into scented candles. Oh. Oh, is this this new game it's smell It's the new thing? game smell candle. Oh, now. good lord. I was going to like do a, a riff. I saw that come up on Twitter. I was just going to do a comment. No, I'd rather play the candle making <laughs> board game game. I will know, make right? two observations about new board game smell candle. Number one, upon doing some more research, it turns out that they were not the first to offer such a product. There are several competing products in the new board game smell scented candle industry. Number two. Which new board game smell? Because there's not a single new board game smell. There are several different ones. There's the one I associate with magic cards that uh, you can still smell to this day. There's the one I associate with generic Euro game printing. There's the one I associate with some Chinese printing. There's lots of different very characteristic smells. Heavy miniature based. Heavy miniature smell. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is sort of up there. There was a a news story that I, I looked at. It's called Peanut Butter Belly Time. (laughs) <laughs> and and you're making all these different flavors of flavors of peanut butter, and okay? Then, and then you can actually send them the combinations, and they'll send you back your flavor of peanut butter that you made in the game. That's wild. Yeah, it's kind of weird and wild, but it was it seemed gimmicky and it wasn't that great. But the scented candle thing made me think of it again. And Sen- look, scented candles are no joke. Do you want to hear a fun fact about scented candles? You can actually track COVID levels based on online Amazon ratings of scented candles. During COVID spikes, there's an increased preponderance of one-star rating of scented candles because people comment that the candles don't smell like anything. I yeah, I guess that would be true. It's No, seriously. Yeah, no, there have been sense. epidemiological notes about this phenomenon. It's amazing. All right, so I have a couple pieces of Kickstarter news, a couple games that jumped out at me. One is called Pest. I guess if if you like the sort of thought of Messina 1347, but wanted like less Yuri and more sort of more to it, then I guess this would be the game for you. It has all the same trappings of Messina, you know, beating the plague back, building up a city, doing all that sort of thing, but just a lot more complicated and a lot more stuff. The other one is Rundar. This is another uh game by Ludos Magnus. They've put out a bunch of games, only one that we've liked, one that we really wanted to like called Scion Tempora. Yeah. 
and another one that we do like Black Rose Wars. Black Rose Wars. So this is play that again soon too. Yeah, to play that again. Yeah, this one's called Rundar Runnar, and it it looks fabulous. The art looks amazing. Oh, all their games look very nice. They do. Yes, but this looks like it has maybe. I'm going to read the rule book this time. I'm not going to be fooled. Yeah, yeah. Don't be fooled. And uh, we'll see how that turns out. Regicide news now. I have regicide news. Ooh. Yes. In fact, this was such a solid week of gaming, I didn't even have time to mention that I played another game of Regicide this week. That's how solid the the week of gaming was and how jam-packed it was. Regicide is going to be changing some of its art. They've decided that, thematically speaking, that the diamond suit shouldn't be, largely speaking, sorcerers. Originally, the conceit was diamonds allow you to draw more cards into your hand. The idea was that you were summoning people from the tavern as opposed to healing them back into the deck, but the the, the the mages were summoning them. They've decided that they have a better fit, and that's that diamonds should be bards, namely convincing people to join your hand. And so they're going to redo a quarter of the art in Regicide. And for those of you that have experienced the actual Regicide art, you know that it's A, outstanding, and B, adds considerably to the experience of what is already an outstanding game. And so they're going to be making new decks with entirely new art for all the diamonds. Now, the important question here is, there are two important questions, of course. Three, actually. One is, what is the animal going to be for the new suit? And the answer is a duck. Nice. Number two, what is the bird going to be? Because <laughs> everyone knows that the five in every suit is an awesome bird person. Uh, I could describe the bird person, but you should see it for yourself. It's an awesome bird person. The third important question is, what about the existing two of diamonds? I'm, of course, talking about Peanut. Every card has their own name. I only remember Peanut because Peanut always seems to be in my hand when I'm about to win or when I'm about to lose. Peanut is always there. Control Peanut and you control the game. I've asked the designers online, what are you going to do about your Peanut erasure? Uh, They have not replied. I think that this is a terrible oversight. And I want to know what's happening to Peanut. I demand a full explanation about the fate of Peanut. Hashtag save Peanut. Agreed. Boycott. No. Whoa. (laughs) Slow down. (laughs) And that is the news and why it doesn't matter. Now on to the topic of the week, which is deal making. So this was definitely foremost of mind for both of us, I think, primarily because of John Company's second edition and also in my case because of Sidereal Confluence, another negotiation game. And the two are very different in nature (laughs) and very different in feel. Uh, Shall we start with the most controversial deal that was struck in the context of our recent experience? Yeah, well, it leads in leads into the two two things. Like, I think there's two main parts of deals. There's bind like in the rules, it'll say all deals are binding, right? Or in the rules, it'll say all rules are non-binding, or particular particular deals are binding or not. Well, there's the most common setup, I think. Uh, especially where negotiations and deal-making are explicitly acknowledged in the game. Because then, of course, there's the entire arena of negotiation in games that do not acknowledge the possibility of negotiation. But the setup in, in John Company's second edition is that immediate transactions are binding, whereas any future deals are non-binding. And it specifically says, it, it actually uses the term transfers. Any deals concerning immediate transfers are binding. So if I offer to buy a card for five bucks and you hand me the card, I can't then say, psych, <laughs> shouldn't have trusted me, five dollars is mine, loser. No, that's against, that is literally against the rules. But if I tell you, do this thing for me, and then my next opportunity I will promote you, 
and then it, the next time comes up, I am free, according to the rules, to not promote you. So why don't you set the stage for what happened? I, I, I want to discuss the specific well, I, deal. I don't think there's any stage at all. I think I think some members of the table were kind of surprised. I was not surprised. <laughs> I knew that you were you, a dirty, backstabbing No, dog. no, no. That's only because you think ill of me. I, I, no, I, I would like to. <laughs> no, I, I just realized that, that it was a future consideration, just like you said. It was... And I have that later on, but you've already covered it. It's like deals that are an immediate transaction of, of course, are binding. Yes. You can't just say, you know, let's exchange, you know, I'll give you $2 for two radishes. And then I hand you the $2 and you say, oh, okay, thanks. Yeah. You, you don't do that. I, I, I'm not really familiar with any games that allow that. I mean, I'm sure there's some Cosmic Encounter module where you can pull that kind of crap. <laughs> I'm sure there is. Because there's all manner of nonsense. But... Or probably some munchkin foolishness. That oh, sure, sure. That. sure. Um, but, but, you know, the other one, anything that's, you know, future is, is just much like an alliance, right? It, it's an alliance until it's not an alliance. And then. Yeah. What specifically happened here was Huey had the possibility of, of torpedoing a vote that I wanted to go in my favor, but just for context, and this I think is, is illuminating as to the nature of John company, second edition, he could also save his money on the chance of one of his family members retiring at the right time. So he had other uses for his cash. I'd pumped all my cash into, into this thing because it was the last thing of value I could get. I had been deprived of retirement opportunities by other shenanigans. And uh, I said, look, if you don't uh, torpedo the law, when it comes time for me to effectuate some control over the law, I will do so to your benefit. And then I didn't. Uh, <laughs> but this all leads to back to what we said before was the fact that we are unaware of of what value things had and and you weren't exactly sure on because I think we figured out that even if you lost that you still you were still I'm, fine. I'm not so sure. It was there was enough there was enough things in motion and enough people had those holdings that had I changed things it might have significantly altered the course of the game. So in point of fact, it was one of those instances where really I could have sat down and mathed everything up, but I decided not to. You know, this is independent from deal making, but yeah. if I can cause the game to halt, so I can spend sixty seconds to calculate things, or I can just go with my gut, I'll probably go with my gut most times. Yeah, just you know, I don't know, say overkill, but overkill. There's no sense. No reason not to overkill just to make sure that you're going to get yes. the outcome that you well, want. But, but that's the thing. This is a particular class of deal that in in isolation, I, I think is fair to say, if it's the last transaction of the game and it's a deal-making game, you have nothing over them. Like, there's, there's, no, there's no reason to honor it. The classic example, actually, is in the case of, of Cosmic Encounter, where... Two people are about to have an encounter. You're both sitting on four foreign colonies. And somebody says, if you play negotiate, I'll play negotiate. That is what we call a trap. <laughs> Don't there, There's no reason to hold that because it's, it's, it's not even the prisoner's dilemma situation. If you play negotiate and they play negotiate, they win. If you play negotiate and they play an attack, they win. So don't do it. I mean, deals at the very, very end of the game should be regarded as, as inherently untrustworthy. Yeah, so Yeah, much like any sort of troops on a map game where, you know, that has a turn limit. Right. You know, in the last turn, all alliances are gone. Yeah, all bets are off. It's everyone. And, and it's, yeah. The only alliances that will hold are ones that are transparently mutually beneficial. Yeah. There's no reason to give any sacrifice. I was accused, for what it's worth, for having done such a thing, of being a sweaty tryhard, which is not an epithet, but it's definitely not what I would consider uh, uh, accurate. It's just I played to advance my own interest. In this case, I did so at the expense of somebody else after having, you know, implied that, I, well, implied, 
out, out bald-facedly stating that I would do a certain thing and then I didn't. But it also depends on, on the nature and the kind of game. Like, so contrast that with Sidereal Confluence. So Sidereal Confluence, all deals are binding. And a lot of people, when they're unfamiliar with the general vibe of Sidereal Confluence, like, oh, how does that work? It's like, oh, it works very well because that's how the game feels. It feels like a cooperative game with a competitive outcome. And it's also just generally not in your interest to try to stick any, any player for any given transaction. There's all... Also, there's hardly any of her haggling. Over the course of a two-hour game, you might haggle once or twice. Maybe. Maybe not even that. But even if that rule didn't exist, even if Sidereal Confluence had the rule, immediate transactions are binding, later transactions are not binding, I don't think you'd see much, if any, betrayal in Sidereal Confluence. It, that's just the vibe of the game. Yeah. As opposed to John Company 2nd Edition, where we're social climbers desperately trying to scrabble money from a corrupt enterprise. Plus, you could seriously hurt yourself if you start breaking promises in Sidereal Confluence. Yeah. No one's going to trade with you anymore, so... Yeah. No one, well, no one's going to make any future deals. That's right. And the thing that differentiates uh, a good score in Sidereal Confluence from a great score is often those kind of complicated, multifaceted, future-oriented deals. If you're able to get a couple of those done, that's really going to separate you. And, and nobody would be willing to do those future deals anymore. And possibly people might even punish you in the short-term deals just out of a sense of distaste. Unlike, say, other games where I think, had there been more term, more turns in John Company, my betrayal certainly would have cost me standing. People absolutely would have held it against me and I would have lost some ability. To, but I don't think I would have been completely frozen out of all trading. I think even in the, 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 the short to medium term, I might have been able to recover and engage in some deals relying on good faith. Tough to tell. But again, the vibe of the game determines a lot. I was thinking about about John Company, and then you think about other Cole Worley games, right, where almost all of his games he allows some sort of negotiation yep. or, or requires some negotiation, and all of his games, I don't want to say are convoluted, but are, are complex enough that it's very difficult to parse out the value of things, like we said. So like in That's Root, a good point. you're not sure exactly what people's powers do yep. or why you shouldn't have to stop this person or if I stop this person am I allowing another person exactly. right so it makes it very difficult to to understand what kind of negotiations you can do in root john company we have already talked about oath same deal because there's like cards entering the system it's such a a different game than anything else there's no way you can figure out what value anything has so any sort of deals in oath he likes fragile, complicated systems. Yes. And I, I don't mean that as an insult. It's just, it's what characterizes a lot of his game design. And as a consequence, it's not easy to parse the value of any given thing, especially when it's a long-term, short-term transactions are, are, are very easy to parse. But the moment you start worried about multifaceted alliances or what's going to happen next turn or compound interest, things like that, oof, you're right. It's, it's almost impossible to engage in a solid calculation. So there's something else I, I, I uh, saw when I was doing some reading and this thing really stood out is that everyone is sort of in their own magic circle. The, the person said in the fact that they are playing the game under their own sort of rules yes. and their own sort of morals and their own sort of what they think applies and things. And everyone's in their own little bubble. And so sometimes those bubbles conflict and you got to, and you got to sort of realize that you say, yep. well, he understood the game a bit differently or he, he thought, this deal was going to work out differently and you sort of just have to make it so everyone is enjoying the game. There's actually a, this is a fascinating parallels to a number of cases going before the American Supreme Court shortly about the nature of fraud laws. 
they're going to have to determine a number of things about fraud. But there's this entire notion about when you're engaging in a deal, how much disclosure is expected. And I think your your analysis with respect to the magic circle is right on point because normally when I betray somebody, I expect blowback. You know, it's just the nature of things. But sometimes I've gotten blowback and I've been quite surprised and shocked by getting blowback. Like, for example, say I offer a deal to somebody and I say, look, out of this transaction, you're going to get three points. And then later on next turn, by virtue of the deal, I score seven. And they're like, you lied to me. It's like, no, I never, what? Like, I said it was good for both of us. Had you asked me if it was better for me than for you, I, pr- I would have said yes. Had you asked me to calculate the expected return, I probably would have been transparent. Why did you assume that it was only going to be equally good for both of us? Like, this is not... But many people, when they see that somebody else profited more, they think they've been taken advantage of, or they expect a certain degree of disclosure that just in just in terms of shorthand alone, I don't expect to disclose. And whether or not that violates any notion of fair dealings, you're right, is is a deeply personal consideration. Yeah, I, that's a that's the a line I have down later on. It's like. You know, I didn't enter this alliance so I could help you win. Right? <laughs> so that sort of like leads to that. I'm not making this deal in order to, you know, so that you're going to win the game. Here's a question, though, in terms of preferences. And again, I think this is one of those things about a, a deeply personal preference. Say you engage in an alliance with somebody, and over the course of the alliance, it's clear that not even by betraying you, but they've been able to get more out of the alliance than you have. Right, just just exogenously, they've been able to. It's so hap- either because of the actions of other players, or because of the board state, or some special power, whatever. Would you rather they win or someone outside the alliance win? I don't think that would. I I wouldn't care. It's irrelevant. Okay. It's irrelevant unless you know hmm. unless unless they've done something in bad faith. Obviously, right. Well, if obviously they knife bad, you, yeah, not if so they, much knife me as in as in. Even though they're winning and they could trade me things, you know, we're in an alliance so they could help me, yep. but don't. Yep, yep. If things like that have happened, then yes, for yeah. sure. It's weird because I can think of, in, in my case, if I were in such an alliance with somebody and they've just profited more from the alliance, I would probably prefer they win. And I think that somebody who would prefer even more strongly is someone like Huey. Huey takes alliances very seriously in the context of these games, but in in the most open-hearted kind of way. Like, if you engage in an alliance with Huey, and even if you are even have a little bit of subterfuge about how you're going to benefit more, he's still going to be like, well, we're together here. This is, I'm, I, I, I said I was going to help you. Here, we're in it. I would rather you win than some other uh, uh, swaggering person goes. But then if you knife him, he's like, yeah, it makes sense. It's all in the game. And <laughs> honestly, it's... Knowing knowing that is, gives you a certain sense of, of of liberty. When I play a negotiation game with a possibility of betrayal, I'll play serial confluence with anybody because I know there's no real possibility of hard feelings. It's one of the great elements of the design. Again, feels like a co-op. Uh, but if I'm going to play something like John Company, if I'm going to play something like Senji, Senji betrayals are beautiful betrayals. <laughs> Gorgeous. The most beautiful betrayal of all is when you give a hostage to somebody and they trade that hostage without your knowledge to somebody else and you're off attacking Green and they reveal your grandpa. It's like, Grandpa, how'd you get to Green? But he can't answer because your grandpa is dead now, you monster. Anyway, setting that aside. <laughs> it's hard because you never know how a new person's going to react to stuff like that. And they may say they want to play a negotiation game. They may say they want to play a deal-making game. Some people just want to haggle far too long. Some people take every deal super seriously. And some people just take the betrayals deeply personally. It's one of the reasons why sometimes, I don't want to overgeneralize, sometimes playing negotiation game with couples who are romantically involved can be fraught. Oh, yeah, that came up a lot in my, in, in my studies. 
It was like playing with, yeah, know, and and it went lots of different ways. It's not it's always one way. It's not always you know, yeah. The, the, oh, sometimes it's fine, yeah, but a lot of times it, it became you know two against one. Yes, more uncomfortable for me. <laughs> You know, those occasions where you end up playing a negotiation or deal-making or a highly political game with a couple, and it turns out they go after each other yes. with an incredible, fierce divide. And I'm like, ooh, <laughs> I don't uh, – no, and, and they're fine with it, right? It's yeah. just, oh, this is just how they play games. Yeah. They, they, it's like I'm winning, but <laughs> I don't feel like I'm winning because they're just self-destructing each other. Well, not even that. It's just I, I just feel – it just feels awkward for me for an indescribable reason, even while they're like, oh, no, this is fine. This is just how we play games. Like, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. And then there's I've, I've, a lot of things I read about were silly games, mostly Munchkin, right? Because yeah. lots of deals and lots of backstabbing, and and one person says that's all about it's the journey getting to the end. It's not so much about winning; it's all about the backstabbing and doing the silly stuff to get to the end. Now, whether that's whether or not that's how all people play Munchkin or whatever, but that that is a point I thought was interesting. Well, it's weird because Munchkin and other games of its ilk are such an ordeal that if anything it kind of obviates deal deal making itself. Like for example, you're going to have a certain number of cards that just prevent people from getting the last level, right? Some of those cards are going to be situational, some of them are going to be less situational. But it doesn't matter who it is if you're not involved, it doesn't matter if you've been friends the entire time, if you have the card and they're about to end the game, you're going to knife them. Like that's just it is what it is. And so the person who tends to cross the finish line, it's, it's, you know, similar to Kill Dr. Lucky. It's actually just like the Kill Dr. Lucky problem. You may have alliances, but they're all going to fall apart sooner or later. And it's just sometimes sooner or later, people are just going to run out of cards to stop people. And then they win the, the game. Ain't no politics that can help you with that. Then unless you're able to get off, get across right. the finish line at the same time. Unless that. Then there was this another one that I thought was hilarious was the fact when you make a deal, you just make the caveat of if you break this deal, I will have no chance of winning. And I'll spend the rest of the game yes. making sure you don't. So you can break this promise, but you can be assured that I won't break this one. <laughs> yes. And for what it's worth, I've heard some people object to that kind of posture. I think it's perfectly legitimate. In in a highly political game, I think it is entirely reasonable to a spurned player who has any legitimate pretense, now what a legitimate pretense can look like can vary from judgment yes. to judgment, to just go after somebody. I object when people just make it their mission to destroy somebody for no apparent reason. Um, but that actually relates to a different question. And this is actually a, a disagreement that I would hear all the time between Woogie and Josephus. Is it legitimate for someone to say, if you knife me here, I will know that you're generally untrustworthy, well, either say or act, and therefore in future games, I will either go after you or not trust you generally. Is it okay to import judgments into future sessions like that? 100%. <laughs> and I read something else that I want to actually do. Make deals in one game <laughs> or another game. Oh, no. Like, not only with a That grudge, sounds dirty. Is it? Wouldn't that be a neat thing, though? Like, I don't know about like neat. It's, a, it would if, be interesting, I guess. you're at a games day and you know oh, you're, you're both going to play something next, <laughs> you say, I will do this trade with you, but when we play X oh, next, my goodness. you have to do this. That would be so delicious. That, no, that I think that I think is bad faith. Honestly, I think <laughs> to the players who are playing the next game, especially I if they suppose. weren't involved in the first, like especially if there's a new player, like they wander and it's like, hey, I'm here for the second game. It's like, oh... There's this already complicated political state, already <laughs> emergent. Need I? It's but it, it's it's impo- But at the same time, it's impossible to fully 
unburden yourself of preconditions of a given player. Like, everybody who played that game of John Company's second edition, if they hadn't known already, they know that I am willing to break promises. Some players are just flatly not. Had I not broken the promise and said, no, 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 when I make a promise in a game, I stick to it regardless, those are things you might remember if you play with them regularly. The, the, the part where I start to get uncomfortable is when people start being it explicitly. Cross me now, and I will devote the remainder of my hobby hours <laughs> to undermining you forever. <laughs> Plus, you need someone once in a while to break a promise, because that makes the tension of making the deals in the first place a little, you know, a little more heightened. You know, I agree. And, and, and give you that feeling that we're actually striking a deal, and there's a chance that... I agree. And I, I think that there's a, a, heart, a huge universe of differing judgments about when that threshold can be crossed. But I do agree that some games... And John Company Second Edition might or might not be one of them. I don't think it is, but some games really demand the occasional betrayal in order for things to really get off the ground. I think Senji is a, 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 a probably a good example of a game where you're going to have to betray somebody sooner or later. Maybe not. People should play more Senji. This is what I'm saying. Just so. Yeah. Lastly, I we've already sort of covered it. When you introduce a game to someone, you have to make sure... They know the rules and what type of game it is and try to give them the best guess on what the value of things are. So when they enter negotiations, they know what they're giving away or giving to people. Yes, and there's a fine balance between that and micromanaging all their economic transactions and telling them, <laughs> telling them what yeah, to do. And, yeah. yeah, and thumbing them towards a certain direction. Yeah, it, it, it helps, especially since miraculously it often means it's towards the benefit of the person browbeating them. Yes. Uh, the <laughs> Which is something I'm often accused of, but I think I don't do. It could be subconscious sometimes. Mm, maybe you're right. Anyway, but yeah, that's, again, using examples from this week alone, it's very important, I think, when people look at Sidereal Confluence for to tell them, no, 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 this isn't really about haggling. This is about a volume of transactions because otherwise they're going to waste their time or think that there's some way to get over on people because they've imported that from other haggling games. Like, no, this is not... It's not that kind of thing. And so that line about this is a competitive game where whoever cooperates the best wins, that, that often tends to communicate it rather well. And similarly, anytime there's the possibility of deals, it's good to emphasize. If the rulebook says something about deal making, you should probably quote that close to verbatim just to communicate the type of game you're about to get into. Just so. Interestingly, though, uh, one thing that was also raised by my playing of Persuasion, as well as thinking about other deal making games, is the value of shared wins and how complicated that can be because in persuasion it's possible for everybody to win it's possible for nobody to win at the end of the game similarly in the context of a game of cosmic encounter it's possible for several people to win or one person to win in a game of cosmic encounter it is generally acknowledged or at least generally assumed by most people this is a sort of ancillary topic that a solo win is somehow better than a, a multiple person win and therefore if you can organize a win with two players that is more to your advantage than organizing a win with four persuasion i'm not so sure and because there's a kind of negotiation involved in persuasion. Again, you have to you have to convince people to send you letters and you're putting your heart out on the sleeve and it's very vulnerable. And, and I ended up in a deep and meaningfully committed relationship with, with, with a very supportive partner, but not everyone can. And I don't know how I feel about group wins there. I don't know if my win would have been sullied uh, by virtue of other people getting to win as well. And furthermore, I, I think my win would have been tarnished if I were happy in the marriage and my partner wasn't. As it was, it was a mutual love match. It was great. It's good. And anyway. I, th I think we're going to get in trouble if we don't mention uh, diplomacy and or uh, Game of Thrones in a in a deal-making negotiation setting. So the specter of diplomacy, I think, hangs over all of this. Like diplomacy is the granddaddy of negotiation games. All of these issues touch on diplomacy. 
Uh, I still maintain that Game of Thrones isn't really much of a negotiation game. I think it's kind of like Rising Sun in that there are trappings here and there, but there's not enough grit. There's not enough uh, ability to make truly interesting deals. But anyway, that that that's a that's a topic for another day, and I'm sure that people are already angrily angrily typing their comments in all caps. True, but it's one of those things where you know in diplomacy that betrayal is going to happen and sort of feeds. Yes. You and- yeah. And if you throw your lot in with somebody else in Game of Thrones, you can expect that to happen, too. Yes, exactly. that's absolutely true. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very, very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker or myself through a variety of means at sowronggamescom slash contact. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. We will probably be more likely to respond to you if you respond in all caps, because that clearly means that the message is more important. Thanks again for spending time with us, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.